Hey everyone, and welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington Church of Christ. I hope this will inspire you and help you grow in your faith as we see God move through His Word. Please stay tuned after to hear more about how you can help partner with us. Enjoy the message. I do need a volunteer this morning. Oh, Molly. Molly, have you ever heard of the law of the pendulum? Are you going to get hit? Well, there is a law that says, how much do you trust me? No, um, there is a law that says if you have a pendulum and the arm that holds the rope in this case, attached to the pendulum, holds steady, that wherever you release it from, when it swings away and comes back, it will not make it back to the point where it was released. Have you ever heard of that law? I, I, yeah, like the Viking ship, except not like the Kings Island Viking ship. That does function like a pendulum, but that's not the pendulum law. Because that's operated by a machine. This is just gravitational pull. Have you ever heard of the pendulum law? You have? Well, if I let it go, it will hit you. You want to try it? Yeah, okay, face this way. Everybody can see. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold this as still as I can. Wish me luck. I'm going to put it right up to your chin. Now, the law of the pendulum states that when I let it go, it should swing out, and on the way back, it will not make it to your chin. I've never done this before, Molly. All right, here we go. Thank you, by the way, for helping me ahead of time. Thank you. Here we go. I'm kind of scared. <laughs> Molly said it's not your face. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <gasps> she didn't even flinch. Everybody give a round of applause to Molly. I flinched. She didn't flinch. I could feel it moving. I thought, oh, man, it's going to hit her right in the face. That would really ruin the illustration. <laughs> Whew. You know, uh, there is a science teacher that would do this in his class. And he would explain in using physics the law of the pendulum. And he would show mathematically that once the pendulum began moving away, it would not come back. It would get close, but it would not come back to the place where it started. It's a law. And everybody in class agreed and could see the mathematics on the board that this was the law. And then he pulled back the curtain and he had a 250-pound bowling ball attached to the ceiling. He said, okay, let's try this. And he put a student against the blackboard. He pulled the bowling ball up to the chin and let it go. And it went across the room. And he says to the student, uh, do you believe the math we just did? And student, yes, and starting to sweat. And he said, okay, do you believe the law? And he said, yes, and he got out of the way. And the bowling ball didn't come back as far. And the teacher asked the class, did he believe in the law? And everybody said, no, it was clear he didn't. Our, our beliefs shape and form and cause our actions. Molly, uh, I don't know how you stood there and just, you didn't, you didn't even blink. So you either trusted me or you trusted the law of the pendulum. Great job by you. Um, our beliefs, what we believe about things, determines our actions. Our attitudes and our beliefs determine our actions. Now, you think about it, this plays out in terrible ways. If you have been tricked into believing 
that the baby inside a mother's womb is just a clump of cells and you call it by a different name other than the baby, you call it just a fetus, then it's no, if you believe that, then it's no trouble for you to put an end to that clump of cells. I hope you haven't been tricked into believing that that's not a baby, a real person, just smaller than other people and younger than other people. Okay, I hope you haven't been tricked into that. But our beliefs determine our behaviors. Our attitudes and beliefs determine our behaviors. Jesus has a way, his words have a way of penetrating right to what we really believe about things. He gets to the heart of the matter, and I love how Jesus does it. Jesus tells stories that kind of sneak under our walls and sneak under our defenses and start talking to our hearts. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is surrounded by these sinners and these uh, prostitutes and these tax collectors, and the Pharisees sees this crowd around him, and the Pharisees come over. Now, the Pharisees are respected. They're wealthy. They have nice homes. They don't make the same mistakes as these sinners do, and they cannot understand, number one, while Jesus, if he is a good teacher, would hang out with that kind of crowd, and number two, they can't understand the pull he has on people. Everywhere he goes, crowds flock to him, so they come and they watch, and Jesus starts telling stories. And one of the stories he tells in chapter 16, what we're going to look at today, gets under their defenses, kind of turns their world upside down, and has a direct attack on their beliefs and their attitudes. And because Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this and record this story of Jesus, it's actually written to us too. And as we listen, we'll hear this story Jesus tells, and the story is, is, is told in such a way that it's going to sneak under our defenses, and it's going to attack our attitudes and beliefs, especially if we believe the wrong thing. Now, there is a truth that Jesus is teaching in this passage of Scripture, two truths, and uh, we have to decide whether we believe it or not. And the way Jesus tells it, it actually examines our actions to see if what belief it actually reveals. Here are the truths that Jesus is teaching. With the Pharisees around and the sinners around, by the way, they're all sinners, but the Pharisees think they, they're righteous, and the sinners know that they're not. The truth is this. And I think we give lip service to this, but we don't let me rephrase that. I give lip service to this belief, but my actions don't always show that I believe it. And maybe you do too. The truth is this. God owns everything. And I am a manager of what he owns. Two truths. God owns everything. He owns all of my money. He owns my family. He owns this church, he owns this world, he owns my body, and he has put me in charge as a manager of the things he owns. Those are the two truths that Jesus teaches. Now, I give lip service to that, and I say, yeah, God owns everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the silver, all the gold, and yet I have a tendency to spend money on my own comfort 
ahead of using it for God's glory. Let's let just let's just look at what Jesus says. Luke chapter 16. We'll start with verse 1. We'll cover all of 15 verses. Uh, uh, we'll cover 15 verses of chapter 16. But you just kind of decide. Listen to this story. This is an amazing story. And then Jesus kind of explains it. Jesus told his disciples. They're with him. The sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the Pharisees. And he tells his disciples. Jesus tells his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager says to himself, what am I going to do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when my job, so that when my job here ends, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, this, this thing, the next thing that Jesus says is weird. It throws people off. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Let me say that again. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And this is kind of a hard story to listen to. Is Jesus saying being dishonest is good? No. There's a difference between saying, I, I approve your cleverness in being dishonest, or I approve your dishonesty in being clever. What he was approving of is being clever. Jesus goes on. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light i tell you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings then he gives an explanation whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, he said to them, you are the ones that justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Can we pray about that real quick? God, I ask that you would open up our eyes and ears to hear this truth that you're trying to teach us 
that you allow the Holy Spirit to just rip through our false beliefs, reveal our, Lord, our evil actions, our sinful rebellion, and then, Lord, change us so that we can be called your children. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, Jesus tells that story, and it's a hard story to listen to, it almost sounds like he's saying uh, this dishonest manager, Jesus is commending being dishonest. But he's not. He's not. He's not commending being dishonest. He's saying you need to be really, really clever. You need to be really, really shrewd. You need to be really, really wise in how you handle money, your possessions, your property. But if you start with the wrong belief, you'll never get to the right action. If you start with the wrong belief, you'll never get to the right action. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. If you start with the wrong belief, you'll never get to the right action. The wrong belief is that I own my money and I own my property and I own my body and I own my family and I own this church and I own my car. That's the wrong belief. The belief begins and it's the foundation is God owns everything and I've been appointed responsibility to be a manager over what God owns. Now, our, the bedrock of our faith, I love how one preacher said, the bedrock of our faith is that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And if you believe that, your bedrock is solid, your house can be built, you can build a life on that one belief. But we're not perfect in our belief. And so sometimes as the foundation settles, we get cracks in our walls. And so if you have always battled this idea that God owns everything, well, maybe your faith is not perfect yet, and it's something you're going to have to fight through, and there's a crack in your wall when you hear, God owns your money. God owns your body. God owns everything. When you hear that, you don't really believe it, and you haven't really been there, and it's not part of your foundation, but something that was added on top of Jesus Christ died and rose again, it can cause your house to shake a little bit, cause you to tremble a little bit. One preacher said, you need to believe every word found in the Bible, and if you don't, it's, there's really no logical way to believe some of it, not all of it. If you don't believe all of it, you might as well just get rid of all of it. But if you believe all of it, you might as well obey. So do we really believe that God owns everything and I'm a manager? Well, this story that Jesus tells and his explanation afterwards, he provides us three examination points to look at our own heart and look at our own actions. He, he, looks, he wants us to look at our habits, our history, and our heart. Our habits, our history, and our heart. Jesus, the way he tells his story, and he gets under our defenses, and all of a sudden, surprise, what do you really believe? Makes us examine our habits, our history, and our heart. First, our habits. Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So we have to examine our habits. Are we using our money now? <laughs> Look at me with a slip up. Are we using God's money now to buy our friends for eternity? I was talking to my son about this. He's 14. He said, Dad, it sounds like you're buying friends. I said, Josh, that's what we have to do for you. No, he, um, he's right in the fact that it sounds wrong. It sounds wrong. Uh, am I buying my friends? Well, yeah, if you use it in a worldly sense, like the dishonest manager... He was using money to buy friends for comfort here on earth. 
Jesus says, hey, wait, 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 wait. You need to do that. You need to be clever like that, but you need to use the wealth God's given you on loan to buy comfort for your eternal dwelling. So what that means is we need to use the money we have now, the property we have now, our bodies that we have now, our time that we have now, everything that we have been given manager over to prepare a place for us in heaven. There's some really crazy parallels to this story in our own life. The manager was accused of mishandling the wealth of his master. And so then we examine our habits and we can ask ourselves, since we've been given management over God's stuff, are we wasting what he's given us? Oh man, I hate when that question is pointed at me. The manager was called to give an account. We will stand before the throne of judgment and the Lord will reward us for what we have done here on earth. We will have to give an account for all of our thoughts, words, and actions. We will have to give an account on how we spend our money. The manager was generous with his master's wealth to prepare a place for him after job. Jesus tells us, be generous with God's stuff to prepare a place for yourself after death. John Wesley, when he started his career, he made 30 pounds a year. I have no idea what that translates into American dollars. But he lived before America was founded. 30 pounds a year, and he found out he could live on 28, so he gave two pounds away. The next year, his salary doubled, 60 pounds. Well, he had put a cap on his living expenses, and he was able to give away 32. The third year of his life, his salary was 90 pounds a year, and he was able to give away 62 pounds. He continued this throughout his life. He put a cap on his expenditures, and he tried to give away as much as he can. He said, here's some wise things you can do with money. Make as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give away as much as you can, all for the glory of God. At the height of his career, John Wesley was making 1,400 pounds a year. Again, I have no idea what that translates into American dollars and into today's time. Wesley died in 1791. The tax auditors in, in England, they said, you know, you're making so much and you're not giving us the right amount of taxes. You must have silver plates in your house that you're not paying taxes on. And Wesley wrote back, I actually only have two pieces of silver. I have a silver spoon in London and a silver spoon in Bristol. And I won't buy any more plate with all the people that are hungry for bread around me. And he ended up dying with only about 30 pounds to his name and his library of books because he gave it away his whole life. Do you think his reward in heaven is going to be big or small? Reminds me of one of my favorite preacher jokes. By the way, you can for this preacher joke, you can substitute any church you like. Just to keep it kind of safe, I think I'll make fun of I was going to say Baptist, but let's make fun of Church Christ. Okay? I'm a Church Christ preacher, so let's make fun, of me. Make, make fun of me. But if you go and tell this, you can use it for Catholics or Baptists or 
or uh, Presbyterians, anybody you want to make fun of. I don't mind. Here's how it works. Preacher down the street dies, and he goes to heaven. And Peter is passing out transportation for heaven. And the guy, two guys in front of him is Billy Graham, and he gets a convertible Corvette. It's sharp. Perfect gas mileage. The next guy gets a Cadillac, the top of the line. Preacher down the street, he's dead. He steps up, and all he gets is a moped. And he says, what is going on? And Peter says, well, it's just the reward is based on how much you gave away when you were on earth, how much you helped the poor, how much you fed the hungry and clothed and and, uh, gave medicine to the sick, and how much of the gospel was preached on your dime. And this is all you sent ahead. So here's your moped. He was pretty disappointed. Driving around heaven. I mean, he, he hated it. A week later, Peter sees him, and he's like smiling ear to ear, still on his moped. And Peter's like, what happened? Why, you were disappointed a week ago. Why are you happy now? And he said, well, that Dale McCamish, I saw him on roller skates the other day. <laughs> See, our, our habits, though, here, our spending habits here, our giving habits here, our habits about making as much as we can, saving as much as we can, giving as much as we can away is going to determine our reward in heaven. We need to examine our habits, especially when it comes to our money, because your checkbook is an excellent revealer of what you believe and where your heart is. If we're supposed to help as many people as we can while we're here, so feeding the poor, helping the sick, and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. Is there an organization that you know of that does all those things? The church. We gather together. We pool our resources. Since we have some groups and teams of people that decide where the money goes, those groups and teams actually know more people than I know So they're able to distribute more in a wise and just manner to make sure people who are hurting get medical attention and people who are hungry get food and that the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up through ministries and missionaries in this community all over the world. And when we give and invest in just our church offering, we are saying the teams that divide up the money and distribute it no more people than I do, no more organizations than I do, no more poor people than I do, and they're going to take it and be really wise with it to the best of their ability. We need to examine whether we're giving to the church. We're called to do so. I'm not saying don't give to other organizations. I'm not saying not, don't give to other parachurch organizations. We bring up and talk about missionaries our church supports and, and parachurch ministries our church supports all the time, and, and we ask sometimes to give above and beyond what you give to the church so we can just give them boost. Like we're doing right now, we have two missionaries we just want to send a gift to and say, we love you, here's a surprise gift for your ministry. We know you're lifting up the name of Jesus. Are you giving to the church? National average says that the average family unit gives less than 2% of their annual income to the church. 
In the old covenant, God said, you need to start with 10%. In the new covenant, Jesus says, I give my all. What percentage have you chosen to do? Are you given right off the top of your first fruits when your check comes in? Are you from work? Are you given right off the top a percentage you have chosen that you can be a happy giver with to God's kingdom investment? Because your reward is going to be determined on it. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself now so that when it runs out, he's talking about when you die, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think there's two things going on here. I think there's a reward we're going to get, but I also think some of the people we help that we don't even know about are going to meet us there, and they're going to say, you don't know it, but God was showing me your dollar fed my family. Your dollar fed was what made Vacation Bible School happen. I was taught about Jesus, and I became saved. And if you haven't given that dollar, we wouldn't have paid enough, and God's going to make all those connections for us. And there's going to be people there waiting for us to welcome us in. Come in heaven. i got to show you around. This is so cool. And check out Dale down there on this roller skates. He's funny. But come on. We're going to go get our reward. Your habits, Jesus says, examine them. Because he says, use worldly wealth prepare for heaven now how are you doing on that he said you ought to check your history too you know habits we can do that short term habits <laughs> bad habits are like a good bed easy to get into difficult to get out of good habits take a little bit of holy spirit empowerment but he says we ought to examine our history too i was at a conference yesterday i was com a conference for elders and they were telling the elders make sure you're paying your minister a correct salary i got to tell you the the elder team and the financial team they've uh they have criteria they look at to pay everybody on staff uh an amount that is reasonable and uh, a reasonable expectation for the size of our church and our rural community and how close we are to Cincinnati and how much education we have. They use all this, uh, this metrics to determine what our salaries are. And this uh, conference for elders, I was sitting there, they said, you make sure you pay your ministers the right amount of money and provide for their retirement because someday you're going to want to get rid of them. And if they don't have retirement, they're not going to want to go. And Jake, uh, our uh, chairman of our elders, he said, Dale, how are you doing on your retirement planning? <laughs> he wasn't saying that. And the verse of scripture that I was studying for today hit me like a ton of bricks. God was using it to examine my heart and examine my history. If you are and can be trusted with very little, you can also be trusted with much. If you're dishonest with very little, you will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will give you true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own. I said, Jake, I don't think I've spent well. My, my wife and I, we haven't spent very well our whole life. And so my retirement planning is not very secure right now. But Carrie and I are, we get hit in the face with this every couple of years that we need to spend better. Dave Ramsey teaches that in most married couples, there's the free spirit and the the, the nerd in the family, one of them that wants to hold back and the other one wants to spend all the time. And Carrie and I are both free spenders. 
The elders don't let me bother the money of the church. I don't touch the money of the church. We got a financial team that are all really, really good at being frugal. They make wise decisions for the money. But I have to examine my history. Where am I investing in God's kingdom so that if my ship ever does come in, I would make sure I use it in a way that glorifies him? You know, if you're waiting to get a raise or a big payday or win the lottery, and that's when you're going to start being generous and start giving, you are lying to yourselves. Because if you can't start being generous and start giving and start uh, glorifying God with your money with the little bit you have, it doesn't matter how much you get an increase of, you won't be God-glorifying or generous with that increase. That's why most people who win the lottery, by the way, I mentioned lottery twice. I don't recommend playing the lottery. I'd stay away from the lottery. I think the lottery is a tax on the ignorant and poor, and I think you would join them if you join in playing the lottery. But if you win a lot of money in the lottery, I think the devil's had it long enough, and you should donate a big pile of it to the church. I don't play the lottery. I hope you don't either. But if you're waiting to hit the lottery to start being generous, i got to tell you, you will fall victim to what most people who win the lottery fall victim to, and that's called bankruptcy. Because they win the money, they haven't known what to do with the little bit they had, they hadn't been generous with the little bit they had, and they have no idea what to do with the lot that they have. And it ruins their family and it ruins their life. Go find lottery, big-time lottery winners. Look at them a couple of years later. Ask them what went wrong. Jesus says, examine your history and start making the changes you need to make to be generous with the little bit you have now, the little bit he's given you on loan, the little bit he's told you to be a manager of. Don't waste it. It's not yours anyway. He doesn't say you can't take care of yourself. He doesn't say you can't take care of your family. He doesn't say you can't ever have any pleasure or comfort. He just says you need to make sure your priority is glorifying him with your money. So examine our habits and examine our history. When I examine my history... I've done some things right, and I've done a lot of things wrong, and I need to get better. Probably, when you examine your history, you've done some things right and some things wrong, and there's room for improvement, too. And Jesus says, use worldly wealth to prepare for eternity now. Start being more generous, and he'll supply you with more so you can be more generous. I believe that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We also need to examine our heart. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Can you imagine? You have a lot of money. You've been using it on yourself. You care about the respect of other people. You're making a lot of good decisions. You are following the law. So all three of the tithes found in Scripture, the 10% that's a year, the uh, 10% that's every three years, and the 10% for the poor, they're doing all that. They're, they're probably tithing 25% a year or so. They're really helping the poor. And yet Jesus says their heart is not really pure. He said, you justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. God knows our hearts too. That truth is universal. There's two ways that we justify ourselves. One is 
We justify ourselves in the eyes of others. We do a bunch of good things so that people can see us and think we're holy and right with God, but deep down to the core, we're kind of rotten. The Pharisees were plotting the murder of Jesus. They were going to let the Roman government kill him, and they were planning the whole thing. But they can look at the Ten Commandments and say, I haven't murdered anybody. But God looks at our motives behind our actions. So we can justify ourselves and do a bunch of good things and actually be rotten to the core, but God knows our hearts. Or we can do a wrong thing and justify ourselves that it's okay for me to do what is wrong, but not for you to do what is wrong. It is so easy to point fingers at what other people are doing and not examine our own heart. I have to make a confession. I steal from the youth group about once every couple of weeks. There's a refrigerator in the youth room. It's got Cokes in there. And every couple of weeks... When I walk by, I think, it won't hurt if I just take one Coke. And I justify myself. Sometimes I buy the Cokes that go in there. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting, and I bought a 12-pack of Coke Zero. Well, at our meeting, we only drank two or three. And so the rest went in the youth, youth refrigerator. So sometimes I, I supply, I stock the refrigerator. So I can take one, right? Why is it okay for me to steal a Coke that isn't mine? It's not. See how I justify myself, though. We justify ourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows our hearts. So now, I can no longer steal a Coke from the youth group. I've confessed it. That shackle of sin has been broken with confession. And if you see me with a Coke walking around here, you've got to ask me, where'd you get it? But you need to examine your own heart, too, in light of this. Because God knows our hearts. He knows your motives. You know what? He tells us we're allowed to be selfish in our eternal security and our eternal comfort. We're allowed to give to the poor and invest in God's kingdom by giving to the church and feed the hungry, and we're allowed to clothe the people who don't have clothes, and we're allowed to do all this selfishly so we get a re better reward in heaven. Jesus says, work for treasure in heaven. Work for your reward. He said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you what you've earned in heaven for a reward. Now, this isn't talking about salvation. If you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and his death and sacrifice covered over your sin, that's what gives you salvation. But for some way, and I don't quite understand it, there's going to be a reward in heaven. I don't think it's going to be scooters or cars or roller skates. I don't know exactly what it is. It's probably going to be more responsibility and more joy, but we're not going to be envious of each other because there's going to be perfect love. I don't exactly know how all that works but I want to start working for my eternal reward now, which is what Jesus tells us to do. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Now, if you examine your habits and your history and heart that Jesus tells us to examine, it will reveal 
whether you really believe that God owns everything. And if your habits don't reveal that you believe God owns everything, then we're called to change. And if your history hasn't been preparing your eternal dwelling and having people welcome you in, Jesus calls us to repent, to examine ourselves, take stock of ourselves, call an account to ourselves, and then change and make it right for his kingdom. And if your heart is in the wrong place, I'll give you an example. Sometimes people say, well, I'm not going to give to the church because I don't like, and then you can just fill in the blank. Usually it starts with Dale McCamish. I don't like what they did to the floor. I don't like what missionary they're supporting. I don't, you know, we don't take uh, designated giving. We don't want to take designated giving. You got $10,000, you want to give it, but you only want it to go to this area. We don't, we don't want to do that. We, our policy is not to take designated giving. Here's why. The elders have determined that every bit of our dollar has a use, and some of it goes to missions. And if you do designated giving, you do an end around over what the elders have decided our missionaries are going to receive. I got to tell you a secret. There's one of those missions that I wouldn't support. But I really trust my elders. And I really trust the financial team. And just because my preference isn't being met doesn't mean I need to do an end around of what I don't like. I need to obey God. He says give and trust. So I trust that our elders who are placed there by the Holy Spirit have made the wise choice on how to distribute the money that I give to invest in God's kingdom. So God calls us to make a change. And we're not allowed to say, well, I don't like this, so I'm going to withhold giving. Because that shows that you think it's yours to begin with. This examination from Jesus is tough. It's right to our core. In fact, everything Jesus says does that if we give it time. Try memorizing. See how it does to you. There's another habit that Jesus says we need to examine ourselves with. He said every time you get together, you need to participate in communion. I was told by a friend of mine that why don't you ever uh, give that warning in Scripture that says if you take communion in the wrong way, it could lead to your death. There's a real danger there. And I was thinking about that. And I think we do give that warning, but we don't always repeat that passage of Scripture because every time we take communion, we ask you to examine yourself based on the Scripture that is given. And when we take communion today, you get to examine your habits, your histories, and your heart in light and in comparison to Jesus Christ. If you're doing that while you participate in communion, you are taking communion in the right way. And I have found out this fun fact about communion. Every time I examine myself during communion and I look at the scripture in comparison and I compare myself to Christ, I always fall short. And that's the beauty of communion. The examination of myself reveals where I am flawed, reveals where I have failed, and rings true with scripture that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the bread and the cup remind me that Jesus Christ died on the cross to cover everywhere where I've fallen short. His blood covers over my sin and his grace makes me 
holy. So I encourage you to examine yourself and be completely honest with your habits, your history, and your heart. Because the reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, His body broken for you, His blood shed for you, also reminds you that you can be forgiven and healed, are forgiven and healed, and empowered to live differently. To truly live out, I trust that it's true, I'm going to live with my actions, I believe it, my attitude's right, God owns everything, and I'm just a manager of it. Let's pray for our communion time. God, allow this time of examination to change our hearts and then empower us to live for you. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, I ask that you would pray and consider partnering with us financially so that we could continue to minister here in our community and beyond. Visit us online at wcconline.org backslash donate to find out how you can be a part of what God is doing here. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope to see you back here next time.